Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Since I've got your attention and now you're well on your way to being fully onboarded to this podcast, I'd love it if you could help get my retention figures up by popping over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, signing up to the mailing list or subscribing on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we go to the Batcave of product-led growth and try to work out who's Batman and who's Robin. We spend some time talking about the importance of product-led onboarding, why time to value is one of your most critical retention levers, how you can get it right, and ensure that you delight your users again and again and again. We'll also talk about the curious case of when time to value is a little bit too short and how sometimes you might need to make it just that little bit longer to really hit the spot. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Ramley John. Ramley started out studying mathematics before moving on to solving the complicated calculus of marketing and SaaS growth. A natural educator, Ramley is currently managing director of Product Led, where he's aiming to accelerate company growth by improving their user onboarding. Coincidentally, he's also the author of a recently released book, Product-Led Onboarding, where he promises to turn users into lifelong customers. He's also the host of at least two podcasts, so I'm hoping he'll be giving me some helpful tips after this interview. Hi, Ramli. How are you tonight? Jason, super excited to be here. I am excited to talk about product, and I just love your your vibe and energy, so this is going to be a fun chat. (laughs) Yeah, I can fake it like the rest of them. (laughs) So first things first, you're the managing director of Product Led, and I've had Wes, the founder of Product Led, on mm. fairly recently. But just to check that your stories match up, who are Product Led, and what problem do they solve? Yeah, for for Product Led, we help mainly right now sales side organizations to apply Product Led into the business. There's something that happened that only happens a hundred once every hundred years called the pandemic, and a lot of businesses are like, hey. You really need to start thinking about how to serve customers better. And one of the ways to do that is through approaching it from a customer experience product led lens versus a traditional sales process where it's very, very top down. So that's what we do. We'll help, we'll help companies. We have a community. We have free courses. We have a cohort six-week based program that really all we're passionate about helping people become more product led in their organization. But that's interesting around the pandemic. And obviously, there wasn't any need for product-led growth in 1917 or whenever it was the Spanish flu was around. But it's obviously affected a lot of businesses in a lot of ways. How have you found that that has affected the way that you've interacted with people? I mean, obviously, a lot more online, but has it maybe even opened up new channels for you that you didn't have before because people are trying to work out how to do things differently? For sure. I mean, what happened when the pandemic is people started going through their budget line and saying, are we using every tool and really trying to identify the question, is this valuable? And the concept of product-led is how do we connect people to the value of the product as quickly as possible? And when they find value is when we make money. And that sounds like a scary thing. So if you don't, if they, if the users don't find value, we don't get paid. That's a very, risky proposition on the business side <laughs> and on the on the traditional sense with sales led i don't get i don't jason i don't care if you find value just give me money <laughs> just pay up the invoice and it, once you're done my hands are uh, my hand i wipe my hands and you you do your thing with the product whether you use it or not i mean obviously that's a generalization but when you're signed to a year contract 
right, with, with the traditional sense, then there could be that moment where like, well, I'll be actually using this. We're stuck for it for a year. <laughs> it takes three months to actually get value from it. So with the pandemic, it's like the realization. Is this giving us value? And a lot more products have been cut. And the, the, one of the benefits of being product-led with usage-based pricing is that you can like throttle down your pricing. Let's say when it's peak season, your business is high, maybe you're, you, you, you want to send more emails. Let's say I'm just giving an example with an email tool. So the more emails, you, the more users you have, then the more you pay. But when it's crunch time, like a pandemic, you can crunch your budget and just like, hey, I'm just going to pay for what I use right now. So essentially, you pay for what you use with the usage-based pricing, which is one of the keys to, to successfully implementing product-led growth. But that's exactly what we, we, we saw. First of all, people are looking at their tools. <laughs> are we finding value? <laughs> and second is if they're not, then hey, we've got to figure out a better way to deliver value to, to users. And that, that's what product-led is about. It's interesting, actually, about the sales-led approach that you were just talking about and the fact that in many ways, and you all have seen this, obviously, on SaaS sites all over the place, like you've got the what I call like the product-led side of the pricing chart, you know, free, $49.99, $99.99. And then you get like the enterprise or the pro or whatever on the right-hand side with like dollar, 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 call us or whatever like that. And there's this almost addiction to hiding and massaging the pricing as much as possible, as you say, to get those deals through and to land that properly. So it is interesting, the, the difference in approach. But I don't know. I mean, on the other hand, I guess the concept of, for example, having an annual contract if you sign an annual contract in February, for example, then you're kind of you're kind of cool through COVID, right? Because you know you don't have to worry about any usage based pricing. So interesting uh, dichotomy there. But what does the managing director of product led do day to day? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm re- what I'm really in charge of is around the training program. They have this six week core program that I, I'm in charge of. That's one of my main priorities. Uh, is making sure that it's a world class experience for people who are going through that. I mean, I also do other things like hosting events, doing some brand stuff, being on shows like this, writing books. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's part of the package per se, where uh, I'm I'm putting myself out there as, as part of the face of the company next to, well, obviously, West Bush is the main. I would be the, the sidekick, so to speak. <laughs> the Robin to the Batman. <laughs> I was going to say, you're the Robin to his Batman. Brilliant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's it. That's the way I see myself is the Robin. But how does someone go from a bachelor's in mathematics to trying to drive product-led growth? I mean, I know you started out at PepsiCo as an analyst back in the day. I think that was actually your first job out of uni. And that's obviously a big FMCG company. I'm sure they've got lots of marketing stuff going on. And I know they have because I've worked for companies that serve them in the past. So what was it that made you gravitate then from that analyst role and using your mathematical background towards marketing? Because it's not necessarily a, a natural jump that you'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, the way that I saw it, what got me excited is, it pains me to say this, is <laughs> when growth hacking came about. There you <laughs> it's go. It's the idea that you're matching technical, mathematical side. Because when I went to school, marketing was colors and yeah. brand and things that, which is now very important. It's actually interesting. It's coming back. It's like this pendulum swing from, the strength. So that's how I got into marketing is this really well, it's analytical and it's, it's touching upon revenue. And as an analyst, I was a cost center versus now in marketing, I'm driving profit and revenue, especially back then it wasn't called product-led, but it, to, mm-hmm. tech, to tech companies. 
And that's how I got into marketing and how I got now into product led was started doing consulting for and leading marketing teams for easy back companies. And once again, they're not called product led, but I was trying to get people to sign up for their free trial and they were happy. I was getting free trials for one of the companies that I was working with. And I started wondering to myself, it's like, I wonder if people who are signing up for this are actually using the product <laughs> because they're VC backed and often VCs, they, they, they like the top number. Like you're getting a lot of signups right now. But in the back of my mind, it's like, sure, I'm getting a lot of signups and they're happy with the cost of acquisition of each user. I asked if I can take a look at their product uh, being in the analytical side. Like I, I knew a little bit of SQL. I got into their backend and I was like, one second, a lot of these people signing up are get, getting lost, <laughs> getting stuck. There's definitely a hole in this funnel. And I was like, what do I do? So I, that got me into more product growth stuff where like we need to kind of usher and manage and direct people to the core value of the product. And that, that got me into a, a rabbit hole <laughs> into eventually now product led. And that's how I actually met Wes. Wes and I are actually alumni of the same school. So he was doing marketing consulting and he reached out and we, we connected. And when he started product led, he saw that I was doing a little bit of training, marketing training. And, and I was already d- dwelling into product growth. And that's how we connected. And that's how I ended up now at product led helping Wes scale up this company and being an evangelist for product led growth to everyone. That's interesting actually because there are a lot of echoes from Wes's story about how he got into this stuff in the first place as well, like working in a more traditional marketing role potentially and then noticing all the problems with that. So it's really interesting. It makes me feel like product led is kind of the natural basket for all these people to land in once they've actually had that epiphany. But obviously Product-led growth will be the book that everyone thinks of, first of all, when they think of your firm and obviously Wes in particular. But you've come in with your own contender, product-led onboarding, which is, I think, literally just come out, maybe come out in the last month or so, I think. Yep. And I remember there being the kind of the book cover contest on Twitter and stuff as well. So that was was exciting. I was very disappointed that mine didn't win. So we'll talk about some of the themes from the book in a minute. But first off, obviously, congratulations on the book. But how's the reception been so far? Yeah, the reception has been super great in in a sense that people have been like rambly. Uh, some people that I haven't talked to back in school, like I keep seeing your book on LinkedIn every single day. <laughs> it was not like in terms of the contest. Uh, I'm sorry, Jason, yours <laughs> but that's interesting because people do judge a book by its cover. Yeah, and the the more pretty or attractive a cover is, the more likely they are to to share it. That was an unintended consequence of doing the contest. So Wes was just like, you should do a contest. I was like, okay. <laughs> and as a result of that, yeah. So, I mean, people would keep seeing it everywhere. The first three days, we had 3,000 sales of the book, where most books, they don't sell 2,000 in their lifetime. Yeah. So, I was super happy with the reception of that. And yeah, I mean, it just, it's been more than I can imagine. I was hoping to, to sell. So, the story is there was a big publisher that told Wes and I that you are not going to sell a thousand copies <laughs> of product-led onboarding. Because yeah, he, that publisher was talking to Wes about taking on product-led growth into their fold and then distributing it. And Wes was like, well, what about product-led onboarding is coming? And it's like, oh, that's too niche. Right. Uh, nobody's going to buy that a thousand. And I was like, that was my goal. I just wanted to like make that guy eat his own words, <laughs> which I didn't. Of course I did. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty honest proper guy. I would not be like rubbing <laughs> it to his face. 
but essentially that was my goal was just to to beat a thousand just to show that this is not a niche topic this is every product every startup even e-commerce every like onboarding is is a critical piece of of growth in their company and if people don't nail that correctly then retention referral revenue is is totally affected in in terms of their their customer journey that's funny though that reminds me of a story from another torontonian april dunford who had the same feedback from a publisher on her book obviously awesome where she again was told by a quote-unquote proper publisher that it wouldn't sell anything and i think that's gone on to do quite well so i don't know if publishers are just really bad at product marketing or whatnot or if they're just really against people from toronto but it seems that there's a bit of a theme going here that's so funny But have you had any feedback so far, as in specific feedback from maybe a reader that you've seen on Twitter or in a review or anything like that, that's either surprised you or potentially even warmed your heart a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess I was, I'm still shocked whenever somebody shares the book on LinkedIn or Twitter. (laughs) Like that's, I mean, what we did was we sent out advanced physical copy to 100 folks and that kind of seeded this flow. and. It just, I'm still, it's still a month. And I, yesterday, just somebody just posted up again. Like we launched the book June 4th, 2021, and it's, it's July. It's now in July, but it, people are still posting up. So I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure <laughs> what to make of that. <laughs> I'm still shocked and thankful every time I, I, see, I see that when somebody shares it. I, I tell all the time if people have questions about onboarding, reach out. And I've, I've yet to get a question. <laughs> I, even in the book, I was like, here's my email. <laughs> like, <laughs> they did my direct email. You find me on Slack and send me a question about onboarding and just reach out. So that's one thing I guess I, I haven't been spammed, to be honest, because wow. I posted it up on the book twice in the beginning and at the end and still not a, a single spam. So I guess that's a single shock that I, I've seen. Well, there's two ways to look at that, right? Either... You've not been spammed yet because, you know, people are being too kind. Oh. Or also, you could look at it and say that the book's so comprehensive that no one needs to ask any questions. So Thank you. I'd take, well, you know, I'd take the latter personally, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's a little more, a little better for your ego. Not, not that no one wants to spam you at all. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll get some, uh, some more as it goes. But obviously, Wes's book covered some themes around onboarding as part of the general concept of product-led growth and product-led growth in general. So why do we need a book? that's just focused on the onboarding part of that? What we found was whenever somebody came in to a sales organization to come in to talk about product-led, the first thing, usually the beachhead or the entry point to product-led discussion is onboarding. How, how do we actually flow this out? And yes, Wes did cover, he had this bowling framework that is that he discussed in his book that I expounded even more. That framework provides the framework. <laughs> it provides a skeleton <laughs> of uh, improving your onboarding. But there was just some steps that we started applying to companies like Mixpanel, Ubisoft, and OutSystems that we I saw was critical in terms of improving their onboarding, which we can dig a little bit further. One of them that wasn't as discussed in Wes's book is around building a team around this, especially often People, when we think about improving onboarding, it's the product that owns, especially in a product organization. And often marketing is looped in almost at the last minute where like, oh, we wrote some copy uh, <laughs> and we know that you guys, that's your thing. You, you're great at product marketing folks, you know, your product and messaging uh, and positioning and marketers, you know, your copy. 
we wrote some copy already, but we and and our, the CEO told us to talk to you about this, which has happened to me as a marketer. I was like, what the heck? Yeah. And now it's already too late. So that's one thing. The very first thing that I often suggest is make sure you're looping in the right people who are in charge of the early stage of a customer journey, including whether this marketers or uh, salespeople as well, which they, they have the voice of customer really ingrained in them usually customer success, they hear the complaints of people usually. <laughs> uh, and marketers, where they usually have the words and the emails that needs to be tied in very closely to the in-app experience. So, I mean, that's why we there was just some steps in Wes's book that we needed to fill in, into, in which became product-led onboarding. Yeah, I was going to say, I was wondering if it was more of an evolution based on real-world feedback. And it sounds like it absolutely was. Like you've taken those initial principles from that book and stuff that you're doing through your company, realizing the gaps when it's actually in the field, and then using this then as a next jumping off point. For sure. Which sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's, I love how you put it. And I'm, whenever somebody asks me this again, I'm going to say exactly <laughs> that. It was an evolution, right? Yeah, it is based on what we've you've been doing. It's like, here's the six steps that we, we help companies improve their onboarding with. So the core value proposition of product-led onboarding is that first impressions really matter. And we've obviously covered that with the cover of the book, but just with the cover of your product and then your first impressions as you start to use the product. And then there's obviously the concept of like time to value and actually demonstrating the value that someone can get out of your tool so that they actually then convert into a customer and stay with you forever, hopefully. But that doesn't always happen. And that's obviously one of the core reasons that your company exists, I guess, is that you want to make it that that happens more. What are some of the consequences you've seen either before you joined Product-Led or with people that you've been working with through Product-Led when people don't get that right and when they don't have that good first impression or that quick time to value? Yeah. I mean, quick time to value and all the first impression is super critical. And an analogy I can think of is Imagine, Jason, you come into a party, right? You're, you've been invited. <laughs> that never happens. I'm sure. I, I, soon. It's because of the pandemic. <laughs> it opens up. They invite you. You come in. The host, the person invite you, doesn't greet you, doesn't welcome you, doesn't even know. Like, it, just you feel snubbed. They don't show you where the food is. They don't show you where the washroom <laughs> is. They don't show you where the barbecue. Maybe, maybe they don't even ask you, hey, Jason, what do you want to do for fun? Do you like karaoke? <laughs> Do you like, do you like, the, do you want to go to the pool? Do you, where do you want to, like, what is fun to you? What is quote unquote value to you? And when, when that happens, I'm, I'm sure it, hopefully it hasn't happened, but if, if it does, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but if, if it was me, I'd, I'd be upset. I'd be annoyed. I'm not going to come back and I'm not going to invite people. And that's exactly what happens when people miss this out, uh, is that there's, there's data that shows, First of all, Profit Well did a study that if people have a poor onboarding experience, they're less likely to come back in three weeks, six weeks, and nine weeks. They, they did a study of over 500 different types of companies from B2B to B2C uh, in 2019. And what they found exactly was that onboarding really is a retention lever. And what we know, what people have been preaching in the tech world would be uh, Alex Schultz, VP of growth at now CMO at Facebook said, retention is the single most important thing to growth. And if I, if I can drive that further, retention starts in the onboarding when you have that first impression. And when you don't have retention, 
you're not going to have revenue, you're not going to have referrals. So that's, that's exactly uh, what often happens is that when people miss out on this, you see a lot of new users coming in and you see a lot of them bounce out. They sign up once, they don't come back. And they study, once again, from Intercom, where they've studied like 200 different SaaS companies and 40 to 60% of new users sign up once and don't come back. Yeah. For the very reason that often, because it's often forgotten, you got the product folks trying to implement the roadmap right, for new futures. And you got the marketing folks and sales folks trying to get people out the door. And there's this middle piece. It's this middle, this messy middle where it's often the baton, if so to speak, like a relay race is dropped and it's not passed on properly between uh, the transition phase from making the promise at the very front with the product and uh, with marketing and sales to experiencing that promise at the back end. So that's often what happens when people miss out on and ignore onboarding for too long. So that's interesting what you said about passing the baton. And also we've already touched on the fact that, of course, it's a really cross-functional effort to get this stuff working. And you've talked obviously in the book around the types of basically getting a team together around it. But ultimately, in your opinion, who owns product-led onboarding? Is it the product team? Is it the product marketing team, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have one? Is it the customer success team? Is it just everyone? I mean, someone's got to actually own it, right? Yeah. But does it matter? It does, in, in some sense. And, and the rule of thumb I usually say is whoever is closest to the customer or customer data, uh, it owns usually owns onboarding. And I talked to, uh, for example, uh, with Facebook, growth is usually m- most in touch with the, the data. So they're, they, they, own, they own onboarding. And Drift, on the other hand, product has revenue goals there at Drift. So the, it's a product team that owns onboarding because if they miss out, they're not going to hit the revenue. And then at Jungle Scout, the closest one, because they're a hybrid approach, they have a lot of enterprise, is the customer success that owns onboarding. And then you got at Sprout Social, where they're very an education focus in terms of trying to onboard new users. So it's actually the marketing team that owns. I hate the answer, it depends, but it really does <laughs> depend. It depends on who's closest to, to the customer and who can get into their mind and who's closest to the data. It really depends on a company company basis. As long as that one that one team makes sure to loop everybody in, and you you said it yourself, it's a cross functional effort, and it's not. Uh, this is my this is my space, and don't touch don't touch my my <laughs> my space, or else. And you really need to they really need to loop in the other teams into that experience. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in some ways, you could look at it and say, "Oh, yeah, you know, it depends as a cop out." But actually, I think it's really important. And one of the things that I've been reflecting on recently is that. Just taking any book and trying to somehow blindly follow the principles and blindly follow some idealistic view of like X should be in charge of Y or whatever, it doesn't always work. So actually, it depends, and you know, it being dependent on context is actually really important, and not just reading a recipe list and then you know just trying to do that exactly as it's written because it needs to adapt to your business reality, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, it really does. And no, no same company customer journey is, is the same. You can even be in the same. You can compare Drift to HubSpot uh, with the conversational marketing. And they would have a different way, the, the customer journey and how they evolve. And it really, once again, another thing that's often missed, I'm getting on the standard here, but it's super important, <laughs> is continually doing user research. And I know for product folks here, they're like, ah, oh, Ramley, that's, that's obvious. <laughs> it's not as obvious as it should be, I don't think. <laughs> 
there's a study by CoSchedule. They found that 65% of product and marketing teams that they talked to, I think it was like 150 or, or 200 or so, 65% of them don't talk to customers. They're just like, what? Yeah. That's absolutely crazy. It's just because people think it's a waste. You know, it's take too long. And I just posted this up on Twitter today. Like, There's three steps to improving your onboarding, if I could summarize. First, identify or understand what success is for users. Second, help them get, get them there as quickly as possible. Third is celebrate it with them. But often, they most people jump into the second one is get them there with what? With a product tour. Yeah. Product tour is attached to onboarding. And when, when, people, when I talk to anybody, usually around onboarding, the first question is around who owns it. Second is, what kind of product tour app should I use? Should I use this, this, and this? <laughs> and it's usually, a, it's usually a tool. And I was like, well, first of all, let's try to understand what success is for your users. And what is that? Somebody mentioned this to me once and I love it. It's what is the promised land for your users? What, is, what does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it, what, what gets them, ex- what makes their eyes light up when they get into your product? Because if you don't know what that is, then you're directing people, you might be directing people to the wrong path. It's like going on a road trip and not knowing your destination. You end up in the middle of the ocean because, oh, you thought that that was the direction. But in fact, <laughs> you're trying to get, you know, you're trying to get to London or to UK. In fact, you ended up in the, the middle of the, the ocean just because you didn't try to understand what users really are trying to achieve. So that's one thing. Another thing that, uh, that I see often is let's get to the product tour. And I was like, wait one second. If, you don't know what the the goal of that is. What end up, ends up happening usually is they point everything out. They, I'm not sure about you, Jason. Have you been in a, a sign up for something? They, you see a product or Jason, this button here, this this, this button this here. Go check this out. Check that. Check that out. And and you're like, whoa, that's a lot of things. Usually, that's what happens when people don't understand what user success is. Is they point every single thing out. Well, it's almost like a quasi-marketing tool as well then, right? So like, for example, you're sitting there saying, hey, look at all these features, and maybe some of those features aren't ones you paid for yet, and it points them out anyway, so you can go and click on them and get told to pay for them and stuff like that. Oh, man, I hate that. And it's like, I agree that in some cases you might want to do that, but at the same time, I think what you touched on is something I've reflected on a lot as well, is like simplicity is really important. Targeting what you're trying to do around just what that thing is and not just taking advantage of that to just try and side load loads of other stuff on top of it as well seems yeah again you don't want to overwhelm people because i completely agree yeah i've definitely signed up for things before you know every single bit of the site glows in different ways little bubbles and stuff picking them in and it's like i just want to stop using the tool same here i don't know any user who who likes i love analogies and it's, it's like it's like going into what is a big grocery store that you go to, Jason? Like, uh, like Tesco or yeah, so let's Sainsbury say or something. Somebody goes to Tesco or, or Walmart or something. They come in. Somebody grabs your hand, Jason, and they're yeah. So people start pointing out, like, here's the toilet paper, here's the paper towel, here's the the cups, and you're like, I just want, I just, I just want to get a, a tomato to make a salad, <laughs> and and it's exact same thing. Often is. With product tours, that's what happens is they're forced into that experience and they're, they're just annoyed. I just, I'm not sure yeah. if that happened to me in real life, I would be super annoyed. And I liken <laughs> that to experiences online when they're forced into experiences and they're pointed out every single thing. 100%. But you talk in the book about the Eureka framework, which I hope you didn't literally think of in the bath, by the way. 
And this is a framework that aims to basically turbocharge that time to value and get you there as quickly as possible. Now, obviously, we want people to buy the book, so we don't need to go through it all right now. But what are some of the core concepts and ways that you recommend trying to make this stuff work? Sure. I mean, I, I already, it's, I like simple nom- mnemonic device. And this is, a, <laughs> it, it's, it, it, each letter stands for something. So Eureka, we already talked about the first one about establishing an onboarding team. The second one is understanding your users. Once again, often miss. So the first two, often miss. Uh, third is refining your, your onboarding success milestone. So figuring out exactly what success is for users. Uh, for a takeaway here, the fourth one is super important is to analyze your whole experience and try to figure out which ones is, is friction and which one is ones that are must have steps into your onboarding. So what Wes and I usually do, and this, this is where the bowling alley framework comes in, where if anybody's played bowling, they, they need to make a strike and the straight, you know, when you, what we call a straight line onboarding experience is the minimum number of steps for users to get there. So what we do with our clients, and this is something that anybody can do, is you would take a post-it note, every field, every button click, every one, every step that a user has to take is one post-it note or one. If you're using Mural or Miro or yeah. Google Jamboard, one sticky note is one step. So if, if you have to fill out a first name, email, and a password, that's, that's three sticky notes, essentially. Once you map that out, what people can do is now ask yourself this question. And often this is often missed because onboarding is like that wardrobe or that closet where you throw all your junk in. And it just keeps going. <laughs> it just keeps growing. We had one client, we did this first exercise and they had 87 different steps for users to experience the first value of the product. Wow. And they didn't even realize it because they're like, let's just... They, it just keeps keeps growing. They didn't realize yeah. that it was just something that, that became into this this Frankenstein. So then they you map it out and you what we use is a red, yellow, or green sticky notes or, or tape. Or in this case, you, you know, if you're using mirror again, you can use like a marker. Red means that this is unnecessary step that you can cut out. Yellow is something that you can delay after the users experience the value, and green is a must critical. And often we we have one team where they cut off twenty percent of the steps, and they started seeing more people actually go through the through the. And this goes back to the concept you mentioned earlier on time to value. Each step is is time. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Each each field is is time. And once again, I, I don't want to like yo know, just absolutely cut down everything randomly. There is there's <laughs> got to be a limit as well. Actually, there's an interesting study by Claudio from Intertrends, he's the CEO there, where they found that their time to value was too short. That when they cut it down to right. two minutes, they found that the retention of users was actually worse. So they had to increase their time to value to five minutes. So they actually had to add friction to the steps uh, into the experience. Interesting. They found this with three three to four other products where you know you can make it too quick that users like I didn't learn anything. Right. Where like they just spoon fed the experience. Versus there, there needs to be a little bit of retention. There's a, definitely a balancing thing. And what we're optimizing for is not just getting people to experience the value, but also to come back again, which is retention level. Now, I wanted to pick up on a Twitter thread I saw where Rich Mironoff, the, the great Rich Mironoff, spoke about how product-led growth isn't really anything new. And it's turning into a bit of a buzzword for consultants. Now, you've applied to that and you actually agreed with him with caveats. But it's an interesting point, right? 
How do you fight against that perception and make sure that when you are speaking to companies or prospects that maybe want to work with you, that this is actually a problem worth solving and not just an excuse to get their kind of consulting dollars out of them? For sure. I mean, yeah, it's been... If I had to go wrap it up, everything is is really not you. Even go, I've th- I got a tra- chance to talk to Sean Ellis, and it's like growth hacking is not you. <laughs> the people people in the eighties have been. If you're a smart marketer, you would test it out. You would get gather data. It's just connecting all the dots together. And Blake Bartlett from OpenView was the one who coined the term product led growth. And the way that I I see it is that. It really is often people think product like growth is about product. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's like, oh, it's obviously about product. I said, just have a great product. I had another discussion. Somebody on LinkedIn was like, oh, just have a great product. Your product like growth, right? Absolutely not. It's <laughs> being hyper obsessed about the customer and buying experience. And the way that I think about it, the, one of the best product like growth before product like was coined it was, is Costco. Think about how you you come in. You're welcome. They ask you, are you a member? And they, if they're good at it, they would look at your name and say, hey, Jason, welcome back to Costco. Yeah. They would point you out if you have any questions. They don't bother you with a forced tour. And they give you samples before you, you some of the products before they, you try it. That's the riskiest part of the buying process usually is, will I like this? Will I find value in this? And they're, they're risking that situation. And there's a study that shows that it could increase increase sales for Costco by 120% for products that they give samples. And so then in, at the checkout, they make it easy for you to check out. They accept mo- almost all cards. So, I mean, that's how I think about product-led growth is it's not just about product. It's not just about having free trial. It's not just about having freemium at all. It's about being super hyper-obsessed with the customer journey and making sure that whoever you're serving they're actually happy and that's exactly what they're looking for and you're serving them where they, they meet it. So that question that, that comes up where, what about something uh, like superhuman where they force you to talk to somebody to sign it up? Is that product led? And I would say that's how they're seeing to serve their customers better and people are going through that. So it's definitely a spectrum. And then going back to what what Rich said is like oh yeah it's it's I agree yeah it, it's not it's not new and he when I said hey it, it's something that has been hasn't been that around in the B two B SaaS space you were you were starting to see it only recently with HubSpot where they're going down market then other people in that thread <laughs> I'm sure you can link this in in the notes other people in that thread well what about Mailchimp Mailchimp's been around for 20 years <laughs> uh, and then Rich was like oh in the 80s you can sign up for internet. <laughs> For a free trial, it just—I think it's just connecting all the pieces together, and you're looking at the Lego, the, let's say the Lego pieces together, and like, oh, I'll take that red one, that long yellow one, and that green one together, and this is this is how you deliver this experience, and these are some of the tools. I mean, the tools have the tools has always been in the toolbox. It's more so yeah. packaging, putting together the tools together, so that here's a path or a process. Uh, and it's just giving it a term and, and a signifier, uh, very much like what we saw with, let's say, Lean Startup, right? <laughs> that's been around for years yeah. with growth hacking. That's also been around for, for years. So to my point, just another tool in the toolbox put together so that it can help you at the end of the day, serve your customers better and deliver them a journey and a buying experience that really is great and uh, something that they're happy and love. 
That's fair enough. I think that that concept of enabling people to put the Lego together correctly is an interesting one. So there's been two books from the product-led stable so far, yours and Wes's. Are there any other books on the horizon? Any other areas that you've started to wobble that little tooth and think that there's some more work to do there? You're trying to get me on healthcare. <laughs> yes, uh, it's something that we're thinking a little bit more about. I mean, the product-led growth book, I say that's the primer. It's the 101, what Wes wrote. Yeah. Uh, the product-led onboarding gives you how to onboard users. But it's more so the transition between sales-led from a sales-led org that's very ingrained where we need to get leads, we need to get sales-qualified leads, we just need to get them on the phone call to this, I wouldn't call it a pure, but a hybrid approach where there are some self-serve motion where people can sign up for it. It's a huge leap, especially for a large organization. It's like trying to turn an ocean liner uh, or like a cruise ship. And then you're like, by the way, you're just about to make a 90-degree turn, but don't <laughs> flip over. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's something that the Wes and I have been chatting around with in terms of like how, what is that journey from a hardcore enterprise sales-led org yeah. look like to, to more of a customer journey, product-led self-serve motion look like? So, yes, the question you answer along with the answer to your question is, <laughs> is something that, that we're noodling around and, and, and chatting about. My time to value on that answer was longer than I expected. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I like it. And where can people get in touch with you after this if they want to find out more about product-led onboarding or any of the other things that I've heard about tonight? For sure. I mean, I provide my email in... <laughs> send me <laughs> oh, yeah, email. we heard about that bit. Ramleyproductled.com. I'm on Twitter, at RamleyJohn. I, I share tips about onboarding and product-led growth stuff. Uh, also on LinkedIn, I'm happy to answer any questions, RamleyJohn. Uh, and if people want to check out productled.com, we do have a free overview course that Wes taught 57 minutes. He timed it <laughs> and it will get you <laughs> an overview of the experience uh, of what product-led growth is. And if you don't even have to buy the book to understand what product-led growth is all about. So check it out at productled.com. There you go. Living the free trial dream. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time and sharing some of your thoughts and experiences of product-led onboarding and product-led growth. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to go over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic episodes with thought leaders and practitioners, sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, Make sure you share with your friends so you and they never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>